Welcome to the Thought Leader Podcast. I'm Dr. Kent. And I'm Randy Baker. And on the Thought Leader Podcast, we search the world for interesting and fascinating and sometimes remarkably smart guests who are going to challenge the way you think, they're going to inform you of things that you may not have thought about, and they're going to ignite your imagination as we discuss all sorts of topics. All right, without further ado... So nice to chat with you, Chris. I'm very intrigued by that blank whiteboard behind you. Most distractingly <laughs> lovely. I just want to go over there and start drawing on it. Right. Well, that's funny because I used to have a bunch of stuff written on there. And then I realized that, you know, maybe that was information I didn't want to share. And maybe the camera was high enough resolution that people could read it. So <laughs> I ended up erasing it all. This is this is actually was a, it a shopping list or was it like your crypto? No, no, no. This is, actually a, <laughs> this is actually a conference room. So when it was still possible to have people in person, people would come here and we would brainstorm on there. And then when the pandemic hit, I just left whatever the last thing was up there on there. And then I was like, well, uh, it's probably unreadable. But then I realized this is an HD camera and maybe you could read it. So I was like, oh, I better erase it. So now it's just blank have the CSI enhancing techniques anyway, you know, with the little sound effects where they zoom in. and Yeah, well, I, I feel kind of like an idiot because this this conference room can seat, I'm sitting at a conference table that can seat six people. And so, but six people have not been in this room for over a year now. And so uh, I pushed the conference table up against the credenza where there's like a 50-inch television, which is what I'm looking at right now. Nice. And, um yeah, and so it's it's turned into the the you know Zoom studio for lack of a better word. But what's funny about this room, and and you can't see it because it's out of shot, um, is that it used to be a speakeasy. No way. And over to my left, over here, is a full bar. <laughs> like there's a full bar and a swinging door at the bar and everything, and there's a sink back there and all that. And when this house was built in the 1930s. Apparently, according to the realtor, every single house had a speakeasy in the back, like a bar room like this, specifically so you could have parties, you know, without your, without your neighbors knowing. Well, your neighbors all had these things, so whatever. And there's a separate entrance to the house, actually, down to this specific room, which is pretty interesting. So yeah, little That's San really cool. history there. So yeah, so now it's my office. <laughs> Just even the simplest word like speakeasy. You know, what a great word. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's terrific. And and actually in San Francisco pre-pandemic there were a number of places that made use of that notion where it was like a bar and if you knocked on a secret door it would let you into another part of the building that was like a restaurant that you didn't unless you knew unless you were cognizant you wouldn't be able to go there. So yeah. And of course San Francisco's got a history of being kind of a crazy rebellious town. So and that that goes along with it. And just as an aside, if you're if you're interested in history, you should go look up a, a well-known San Francisco figure called Emperor Norton, who was an amazing character from the Gold Rush days and and sort of the uh, later part of the 19th century. 
And I'll leave it at that. You can go look him up. He's, <laughs> he's kind of an absolute, very, very San Francisco character and is quite famous in the city for, you know, being a person that was negotiating all of the difficult racial tensions in the city in the late later part of the 19th century. So really a fascinating figure. Anyway. I was I, I feel I feel like I should say, speaking of emperors, let's talk about you. No. <laughs> no. Oh God, no, I'm far from that. Just I'm, kidding. I'm just some guy doing startups However, in Silicon Valley. <laughs> I love the idea of I've always loved the word kingmaker. Mm-hmm. And I have a bunch of friends who have done have been in politics and in that world, it's, you know, as well as in, in business, you, you see people behind the people and there are people behind the people behind the people, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I love just kind of perusing everything that you've got out there and you're a guy behind the people. Um, so <laughs> yeah, sort of, some, yeah. That's right. Yeah, some, but you've built a, a forward, you know, an outward facing company around that. So I'm, I'm very curious kind of how you would define what you do. So I'm a fractional and interim technology executive that helps companies figure out where to go technologically. I also act uh, sometimes as a shadow CEO, particularly for later stage startups that have some amount of difficulty getting to where they need to go. And that's what I do. I'm also working on a bunch of startups, of course, because I'm a startup guy um, at the same time. So yeah, doing way too many things kind of the personal brand side adjacent to what you do in a way, right? So you're, you're, you're building, rebuilding, supporting, helping, pushing, uh, kicking, beating <laughs> companies and their executive teams, I imagine. I'm the beatings sort of will stop when things improve. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> so what we do is sort of adjunct to that. And we talk about reputation. So I'm curious to sort of ask you, What's the state of CEOs in tech, outside of tech, in terms of how comfortable they are in telling their story? Because, I mean, you're, you're very willing to sort of come out with, here's who I am and here's what I think and feel. And, and the speakeasy thing is great. You know, it's interesting because to a certain extent, especially in Silicon Valley and especially if you are a venture capital based or you wish to become a venture capital driven company, then you have to be a storyteller because it's all about the story of your company. That's a that's a, a necessity to raise capital is you you must be able to tell your story. But often the story is very contrived, right? Because it's a marketing piece effectively. And the canonical example of this is the story about how eBay got started, which was that Odomar's wife was a Pez collector and that it was Pez Pez machines that started eBay. But actually, it's complete BS because that was made up by a marketing person. And I I thought it was Beanie Babies from what I heard. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. But that's a great example of how you, you tell your story in a way that resonates with people. I'll give you another example. There's a company that I I advise, I'm on the board of advisors, called Autobound. And Autobound does AI-driven email responses for for sales, right? And it's founded by two guys who were childhood friends. And the story is great because one guy worked at Oracle and he invented a process and a methodology that made him the top sales guy in North America for Oracle. 
And he actually codified that process and methodology, and it was rolled out across Oracle's sales teams. And the other guy was the lead sales guy at Yelp in North America and sort of did the same thing. And when I was talking to them and they were raising capital, I said, you, need, you guys need a genesis story about how you came together to do this. And the story we came up with was that they were on a chairlift yeah, skiing and they were talking about what they were working on. And they both said, you know, we could apply this to others. And that's the story that they tell when they go to race. But of course, that story is only somewhat true. They've known each other since they were kids. So obviously, <laughs> they would have been discussing this on a chairlift somehow or another. But it makes for a great humanizing story about the genesis of the company. And so if you're a tech CEO and you're going for funding, then you must be able to tell the story. However, there is a however. There was a woman, and I, I'm spacing on her name right now, but she, made a, she had a series of conferences called FailCon, all about failure which was a terrific idea to talk about because nobody talks about failure. And yet, if you're doing a tech startup, you're going to fail. Nine times out of 10, you will fail. And so you need to hear about failure. And in fact, venture capitalists prefer people who have failed because they've already been through the ringer and they kind of know what not to do, at least at some level. You'll make other stupid mistakes, but whatever. And one of the remarkable things about the fail con was all of these luminaries from technology companies standing up on stage and saying, nobody has ever asked me about my failures, and I'm here to talk about my failures. You know, people like Vinod Kosla telling you about how they failed many, many times. And this is the unseen story of Silicon Valley is actually a story of failure and headache and heartache, trying to finally get one that actually works. And that's, that's really, really hard. And I think when you talk about reputation, you talk about stories, and you talk about how people position themselves, all you see often is success. But that success is built on a ton of failure. And nobody ever talks about the failure side of things, partially because it's painful, but also because it's sort of uncouth and not done, right? So anyway, that's my story. I think, Chris, in the last um, three to five years, the failure aspect that you're talking about is is now worn on people's sleeves. They they stand up and they they tell you you cannot succeed unless you have failed. So the pendulum seems to have swung totally the other direction. But talking about origin story, so KPMG, the big accounting firm, their origin story was Mr. Pete and Mr. Marwick met on a transatlantic voyage. And they didn't know each other. They got together and said, oh, you're an accountant. You're an accountant. We should get together and build this transatlantic firm because I'm in England and you're in the US. Let's make it happen. And that story may or may not have been true, but it was certainly propagated as being the way KPMG started. And as a, as a KPMG alumni, when I first started, I was told that story and it was beaten into me for the next two years. Every time somebody talked about KPMG, it was the origin story. Hmm. That is, so, that's, that's Schrodinger's cat, right? Where it's both alive and dead. Both are true. So yeah. <laughs> they actually yeah, did yeah, meet on the open ocean and they didn't. Yeah. Right. Well, I, and I think, I think to a certain extent it doesn't matter. Like, you know, because I, I mean, it, it does if you 
want to be absolutely factual about everything. But let's face it, marketing is never about being factual about everything. It's about Mm -hmm. helping people to understand who you are and where you're going and where you came from. And if stories like that help humanize the story or give people a touch point they can relate to, then that's great. That's perfect, right? That's what matters. That's what you're after. That's not, it's not really about, I mean, maybe an accounting firm wants to be completely truthful, but you know, I don't know. Maybe not. <laughs> we would hope so. <laughs> not after the founders are dead. It doesn't really matter. Because it's just, um, it's folklore. That right, exactly. So, folklore is a great way to put it. Yeah, that's true. And, you know, I mean, Silicon Valley has a, has a ton of folklore. There's a, there's a famous example of that, of um, a friend of Steve Jobs meeting him at the a supermarket in Palo Alto, at the Safeway, actually, in Palo Alto. And saying to him, congratulations on your overnight success, because he was on the cover of Time. This is in the 80s. Mm-hmm. And Steve Jobs' reaction was, it's only taken me 10 years to be an overnight success. And that's the, that's the other reality of it, is there, nobody ever looks at the long tail of work that it's taken you to get to where you are. I, I, you know, I get that all the time, especially people who are uh, quite young and are just beginning in tech. They say, oh my God, you've done so many stuff. And I'm like, yeah, well, but I'm... 52. I've been at it for 30 plus years. So of course I've done a lot of stuff. And, you know, you don't see the, you know, 20 years it took me to get to where I am now. And, and, and that's inevitable for most of us. It takes, um, I'm not going to say a lifetime, but sort of something close to that to get there, which is always a disappointment. Like you get to this age and you go like, God, man, what am I doing all this time? You know, and you look at people who are like 30 and super successful and you're like, just how is that even possible? I'm forgetting that you were that person at some point, right? And and everybody was looking at you going, how on earth did you get to that point? How can you be that person? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So um, yeah, I think uh, I think it's really interesting. And I think also, I think now nowadays, in the last five years, it's gotten really hard to get above the noise. There's so many people that are buying their reputation in various ways or engineering their reputation. I think for somebody like me who is not a master of that those kinds of techniques, it's a lot harder to get above the noise and maintain a reputation that is relevant and appropriate. Especially well, because the, yeah, so go ahead. Sorry. What well, one of the things that I see personally see happening is, you know, companies in the startup phase, they've maybe raised a series A, Series B. Now they're rushing in two directions. One is to get the marketing department to get their product known and the other is to reach the next milestone before they run out of money. And they don't give enough thought to the power of lifting the executives up so that the executive voice separate from the product can be seen. People are now basing decisions, purchase decisions, on what they see as the CEO definitely and the executive team wholly. What do they believe in? What do they stand for? That drives the purchase decision. Yeah, that's really true. And it's, it's actually even worse than that because often you have one or two founders that, you know, by definition have a huge ego and they don't want anybody mm-hmm. else to get the limelight. So you, you get other capable people within the company that are not being exposed as being luminaries or whatever. Yeah. I think I always tell there's, you know, a lot of tech startups are, are, are started and built by engineers. And I always tell engineers that engineering is the easy bit. Mm -hmm. Sales and marketing is the hard part because engineering 
is a relatively contained exercise. You kind of know what the goals are, you know the methodologies needed to get there and so on. But sales and marketing is, is, a, is a people business and people are very mushy and unpredictable and so on. And so that's a lot more difficult to get your, hand, your hands around and your head wrapped around than the engineering bit. And you're right. I mean, I'm, I'm working right now with a company that got $15 million in funding and currently, after eight years, they have about, you know, $50,000 a month in revenue, which is insane. Like, you know, I mean, there's, there's you know, you just look at that and you go like, how, how did you fail so badly at the sales and marketing side of thing? And the answer is you're run by a bunch of engineers who, who don't understand or value those kinds of things. So, so in my experience engineers have a tendency to fall in love with their product and so they may not be creating what the market actually wants. So Yeah, well that's another I'll give you a, a canonical example of that. I was working with a so I'm a engineer by nature and have been a CTO and VP of engineering at a bunch of companies, but I've also been COO and CEO at a number of companies mm-hmm. too. And one of the things I pride myself about is I try to understand all parts of the business. Like I I view engineering as an expression of all the other stuff that needs to be done at the business and vice versa, right? So there's a push-pull between all sides of the business. So I was I was trolling through this company's CRM and looking at the customer interactions as was captured in emails and so on. Mm-hmm. And there was a proposal that was sent out and it was only to, to some potential client. And it was only three months later that somebody even bothered to ask what their problems that they were trying to solve were. You know, after after three months after a proposal was sent, and then I'm like, I'm I'm looking to see if there's any change in the behavior after the customer who thankfully wrote like a long email about what they were trying to do, and there was no change in the sort of sales strategy or messaging or approach or discussion or anything. And I thought, boy, there's your problem right there. You know, kind of unbelievable. And so, yeah, I I think the other part of it that I think is really right now is is really a problem is um this the engineers will always look for an engineering solution and right now the engineering solution du jour is ai right and so everybody's like ai ai is going to solve everything and what i always tell people is ai is great but there's two things you have to realize is a ai is always using backwards looking data it's like historical data it's almost it's never projecting forward i mean you can kind of do that if you want, but that's, you know, another story. The other thing, too, is that the first step in AI is for people to build training data. And training data is built by humans that have biases. And so inevitably, you have two problems. You have biased training data, and it's all backwards looking. And so that's all fine and good if the AI is being applied to an engineering problem. But when it's being applied to a people problem, that may not be the expect the things, the result may not be what you expect. Um, it's like the famous Henry Ford saying of, you know, if I'd ask people what they wanted, they they tell me they want a faster horse, right? And and so there's a sort of a catch-22 there. It's like the hammer and everything looks like a nail, right? So, yeah. So, Chris, we have to wrap up here because we love punchy short interviews. But what I think is so amazing about you is that you weave magic with, your analyses and they're short, pithy, like uh, well crafted. What I think is interesting is I, I 
I feel I in every single interview, and Randy can tell you this, I'm going for the jugular, I'm going for the childhood, I'm going for the psychology, I'm going deep. What's amazing about the arcs of your stories is that they're just too good. I couldn't dive deep. I couldn't, I couldn't, I couldn't go for the belly or the armpit or something. But what I think is interesting is in before the interview, um, there's so much space there for you to come out as Chris and kind of tell your story. Because behind your sort of ingenious arguments, I, I'd love to see the book. I'd love to see the, I'm not sure, you probably have done some of these things, the book, the podcast, the plebeian kind of stories that help us understand a complex world. Do you have any of that in the works? Uh, no. <laughs> I'm I'm still too busy building startups, I think, is, is the short <laughs> answer. So I've started... What I have done is kind of interesting because it's not a book and it's not a podcast, but I've started looking at building systems and tools that are useful to individuals, particularly leveraging all the big technology that's been built in the last five to 10 years that I think is being used against people to make it useful for people. And so I kind of want to turn the tables on the tech industry almost. And that's what I'm spending my time on right now. And I think there's a real issue in the sense that, you know, businesses are digesting all of this information that they're using to target individuals for various reasons. And individuals just don't have access to that kind of level of data or data processing. And that asymmetry mm -hmm. bothers me. And that's what I'm, I'm looking at trying to fix. I don't know if it's possible, but I'm trying. So love that. Thank you, Chris. Really, really wonderful to chat with you today. This went deep. Uh, I love all the, the ideas and concepts here, and I can't wait to talk again. It's good. Great. Thanks you very much for your time, and thanks for having me. Thank you. This has been such a wonderful conversation today. It was surprising, it was intriguing, it was interesting, and this is just an example of the types of guests that we have on the Thought Leader podcast, and we would love you to subscribe so you get to hear the next issue. Or you can visit our, our website. Our website is thoughtpartnergroup.com, and at the top you'll see a little button that says take the assessment. In one minute, you can take the assessment and get a response from us, we'll read everyone. All right, take care, have a good life, and we'll see you on the next one.